This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Move it, Brad. Move it, Brad. And welcome to episode four of Caged In Presents Movie Brat Bros to Palmarama, the podcast where we are going through every single film of the Maestro of Mayhem, the uh, Hitchcockian connoisseur himself, Brian De Palma. This week I have the absolute pleasure of talking to not one but two guests in the form of Mark Searby, who has written a fantastic book called Al Pacino, the movies behind the man. And I'm also joined by Matt Brothers, who, if you listen to the regular podcast, may recognise from um, the episode we did on Ed Wood, and a now famous episode, especially amongst uh, certain circles, in regards to the fact that it was, for a while, a lost episode, because I lost my audio for that episode, and uh, me and Matt had to re-record that at a later date, maybe one day, that lost episode will return in some way who knows who knows who knows who knows who knows but yeah we are talking about brian de palma's 1993 movie carlito's way but you already know that because it's in the title of the podcast and if your ears are pricked up you may hear the opening score below me talking right now uh this was a really fun chat and it was kind of uh the recording process itself almost mirrored the film in that uh, uh, I totally forgot that Zoom only gives you 40 minutes now if you have more than one guest on. And, uh, it's been a while since I've had uh, a Zoom with uh, yeah more than one other person for the podcast. So it's very much an aspect of us racing against the clock like Carlito at the end of this movie. But either way, it was a lot of fun and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. So I guess all that's left to do is to get movie brat in with the bros. Court of appeal. 
appeals decision now devolve upon me the painful duty of unleashing upon society a reputed assassin. The prisoner's discharge. Call the next case. You got Lito Brigante, man. You a legend. He's one of us. Puts money in everybody's pocket big time. He was big. He's a tough guy. He just got out of Lewisburg, man. I'm reloaded and back with another conversation about a film of Brian De Palma. This week we're talking his 1993 crime thriller Carlito's Way. Joining me to hopefully get me on the straight and narrow away from my old life of crime is my two attorneys. First up is journalist and most prescient for this conversation, it must be said, is the author of Al Pacino, the movies behind the man, Mark Searby. And my other counsel on the bench for this chat is the busiest man in podcasting. You know him from his Paul Dano OK, Sudden Double Deep and Spotlight. It's, of course, friend of the podcast, Matt Brothers. How are you, gentlemen? Thanks. Good. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for having me on. I, I was going to do a hoo-ha and then I realised that's the wrong film. <laughs> it's got a court scene, right? So I think <laughs> yes, yes, that's true. Yes. Doing very well, guys. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm loving Mark's background here, proving the the Pacino expert. <laughs> I can I see not on... only a not only a Serpico poster, but a cutout as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, the uh, the cutout was from the book launch. Uh, Amazing. So a few years ago, um, Al Pacino, in inverted commas, turned up uh, <laughs> in in cardboard cutout form, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to keep that. 
Um, the only problem is that uh, the, where he's situated in this room, he stares out into the hallway. So if you get up late at night and you're not really looking, the moon is, <laughs> is shining at a certain point. Al Pacino is looking at you at three in the morning, which is kind of off-putting. <laughs> or maybe not. Maybe, you know, maybe some people like that. I don't know. Got a great ass. <laughs> yeah, give me some compliments as you're as you're yeah. oh, thank you, Al. <laughs> Thanks, Al. Um, well, before we get too deep down, we'll be talking loads about Al Pacino. But before we do that, I just want to know, what were your introductions to Brian De Palma? And we'll kick off with you, Matt. What was, what was, the, what was your entry point to De Palma? Christ, I'm not really sure, you know, but it might be this film. Because um, there's a lot of my chats on other pods go. It seems a lot of my uh, movie history goes back to... Uh, my old friend Paul from co-host of Spotlight, who with his extensive DVD library back in the, the raging early noughties, when that was the only way to source a whole lot of these things, put me onto so much stuff. Um, and I'm definitely sure including this would have been when I first saw it. Um, I think I was maybe aware of both, say, Carrie and Scarface, like some of the big ones. And then, What about Mission Impossible? Only some of his deeper... That, that... Oh, Mission Impossible, of course, <laughs> yeah. And um, I mean, at the time, I was probably all about Mission Impossible 2, let's be honest, when uh, I was about 14. But... Definitely caught up with it. Um, and then, yeah, I think a lot of his deeper cuts I've slowly started to catch up on now. And there's still a lot unseen of mine, uh, of his, that I need to catch up on as well. What about? But um, yeah, that, that would have been it. What about yourself, Mark? Where, where, where did you first become aware of Brian De Palma? Scarface, plain and simple. Um, you know, that's obviously being a huge Al Pacino fan, that's one of the, you know, one of the top films isn't it that everybody tells you to watch and i think that's where it came from and then certainly carlito's way after i think that's where i realized that there's there's a different guy here even though it's the same director it's a different guy he's it's not the same movie i know we'll talk about this in a bit but he's he's looking at something completely different here and maybe this is a bit more nuanced than scarface is yeah well i think when it came to like approaching this project uh brian de palma was massively reticent because of the fact he's like I've done an Al Pacino movie like about a gangster. He started like reading the Spanish dialogue and he's like, oh no, it's Scarface again. And I imagine that project is probably, uh, when I get to that film, it's littered with, uh, how do we call it? A big, a big uh, Oliver Stone kind of, uh, do you know what I mean? Like kind of barrier in the way of trying to get that film made. So, so <laughs> imagine, imagine, yeah, that, that kind of feeling of, of of having that on you you probably did he didn't want to go back to this world in a way but like i think once he read the script was like oh no this is something completely different like it's um i think he saw it as a noir which i guess you can kind of see in the visuals of it definitely um mm. but yeah before we talk about it like uh yeah get really down deep into this film I just wanted to know from you guys, and we'll start with you, Mark. What what do you see as like the tropes of a De Palma film? Obviously, kind of, he's a very visual director. What what are the things you think of when you think of a De Palma movie? It's a really good question, really good question, and I'm sure there are more intelligent people than me who will be able to answer that straight off the bat. Maybe you guys can, you know. And <laughs> if you do, you're more intelligent than me. That's great. Um, that's a, I don't know. I mean, excess. Certainly, you know, you think about Scarface, that's full of excess. Think about some of his sexier works mm -hmm. as well. <laughs> um, uh, I, I think an attitude, you know, there's an attitude of, well, fuck it, I'm going to do it. That's it. You know, uh, I don't give a shit. Um, 
bold filmmaking yes. as well, maybe. Um, a, a, a guy who genuinely knows filmmaking, knows what he wants from the off. And if you're not into it, then you're going to be left behind, which, you know, has happened in a lot of his uh, films. There's been some performances where you're like, this does not fit here at all. And I don't think they buy into the De Palma vision. So what are his tropes? Yeah, uh, I, I think aggression is maybe one of them. <laughs> some people will tell me no, but I, I think that having seen quite a lot of his stuff, I would go with that for, from my point anyway. I think what what is quite great is there was a uh, like journalist back in the day who uh, Martin Amis dubbed him Martin De Plasma for the amount of blood that he kind of had in his movies, which I thought was like a kind of you talk about that excess, and I think like excessive violence is something that he sometimes revels in. What about yourself, Matt? What would you say the tropes are of a of a De Palma film? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, he's definitely someone with his own style and, and approach. And, and like we've said, I think he's very much someone who knows how to put together a film, especially in his heyday. Um, and it's interesting that he's very much has this kind of alternness to him, but he's also, you could look at his filmography and say he's a bit of a journeyman as well. You know, he jumps from like musicals and horrors to kind of thrillers and hard-boiled noirs and gangster films. <clears throat> both um both kind of period and contemporary and and then you know spy movies as well like he he jumps around but they're all very much de palma movies and uh yeah he's definitely got his stylistic tropes you know he's got he's a he's a lover of the split diopter and steady cam and a wanna and all these amazing kind of things that make films feel like films that a lot of people just overlook or don't bother with these days it's it's great it was great watching this today um I started I started watching it last night and got most of it done and had to finish a bunch off on the tube as well and just feeling myself being there on the tube like watching very much a movie like it may have been on my phone but I was like looking over other people and it's just watching very overly lit TV stuff and it's just like hey I got a classic going on over here and you can tell this is the real shit um but yeah I think like you know like sort of manly man stories as well like he's got a lot of like these big uh, male figures as the, in the leads of a lot of stuff as well, but then you know also stuff like Carrie. So he's he's jumping around and making it his own. I, I guess like from from starting this deep dive into De Palma, I, I I've probably found like I guess like there's the obvious Hitchcockian like references he kind of dabbles with in every film and kind of borrows from the Hitchcock handbook in regards to like there's voyeurism in all of his films, whether it's like just using the mm. POV shot or kind of I don't know, like, yeah, these, the the way the way he the way he films certain things, and I, I guess yeah, with this film, it's that first time that um, Carlito goes into the El Paradiso, and you get that amazing shot of like the narration where he's kind of like looking about, and he's going, yeah, it used to be a bit different back in my day. It was all about grass and, and bell bottoms. Now 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 it's all cocaine. And, and and and, and, and uh, flares and stuff like that and like that kind of, like the way the camera kind of floats around i think like yeah that that's very much like yeah the one of the big de palma like kind of tropes you get and as you said the split diopter uh him and Stephen mm. h burham like kind of go back to that every time and it's always like it's visual crack for me that's like i kind of there's like a, a mental like ticker in my head every time one comes on, like ding, another one, ding, <laughs> another one. I absolutely love it. It's them. somehow able to be very stylistic and also not overly flashy as well. Like, you know, you do have moments where it's um 
you know, big outlandish kind of like Dutch angles or colors and a vibrancy to it. But also it's just in the craft of stuff. Like we'll get on the big chase towards the end. But there's moments in that where it's just like a big one that ends up sort of going down the escalator, like in shot in this big steady cam move. And it's something you wouldn't really even think about or notice and unless you happen to be like, oh, wait a minute, that can't be easy to do. And that's a really cool idea. And there's not just like a cut here. And so there's moments like that throughout uh, most of his films that I've seen that really kind of elevate it all without being overly like, look at me. And then there are the moments that are, look at me. <laughs> you can do both. So who wants to take the duty of giving a synopsis for this film? What, what what is this film about? Who wants to who wants to jump in on that before I nominate someone? I'm I'm happy to do that. <laughs> I, I should do it really, to <laughs> be honest. Yeah, sure. away, the scholar. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's okay. So for anybody who hasn't seen Carlito's Way, it's about a former drug kingpin, Carlito Brigante, who uh, is released from prison early on a legal technicality thanks to his uh, cocaine-addled attorney, uh, Jeffrey Kleinfeld. Uh, Varen to go straight, Carlito takes a job managing a glitzy nightclub. He also rekindles his romance with his old flame, Gale. But Carlito's dream of going legit is undermined at every turn by mur murderous former cronies and even deadlier young thugs. Well, that is I think that nails very it. good. That is beautiful. That is uh, normally even even when I go on podcasts and they've said like you need to prepare <laughs> a synopsis, I just like fumble it and go. I think it's about this. Uh, yeah, yeah. But that was yeah, that was masterful. Oh, thanks for that. Uh, so, on to some of the stats of this movie, it was released uh, on November twelfth, nineteen ninety three, in the US, and then was released here in the UK on January seventh, nineteen ninety four. The film stars Al Pacino, Sean Penn, Penelope Ann Miller, John Leguizzi Armo, and Louise Guzman. The budget for this film was thirty million dollars, with a box office return. 63 million dollars and the film has oh it has a hefty 144 minute runtime a nice long a nice long slice so yeah where do, where do you guys like who wants to let, let's let's talk about some scenes that you particularly enjoy in this film uh mark like w w we could blow our load and talk about the end first but like is, is there stuff kind of in the earlier sections of this film that you particularly enjoy yeah, there's loads. There's loads. I mean, I think everybody knows the first piece of violence that Carlito is embroiled in, which he doesn't want to be in, you know, at the uh, um, at the pool table. Uh, mm. He sees everything because obviously he's been there before. I mean, that's a great piece as well. And quite funny as well. Let's not forget the fact that it's violent in a sort of De Palma way, but then all of a sudden he's in the toilet. He doesn't know that everybody's been shot and killed. <laughs> And yet he's got the gun, he's got no bullets, but he thinks, hang on a second, I'm I'm still going to pretend like I'm the big guy here. And, you know, obviously the iconic line of, uh, you know, you're going to die big time. And he comes out and he's ready to go and then everybody's dead. I mean, it's weird watching it because you're all pumped up, ready for the violence, which happens. And then the payoff is not so much the deaths of the of the gangsters or anything, the payoff is the joke that he opens the door and everybody else is dead. Now, we've <laughs> seen it many times before and since <laughs> in a lot of films, but you don't expect it in a, a film like this. I think that's the interesting thing about it. And I think De Palma 
you know, going back to what you were saying earlier about one of his tropes is that obviously comedy is not a thing for him, but in Carlito's way, there's quite a lot of humor. Mm-hmm. I think, he, and I'm not sure if people are aware of it. Yeah, I think he gives Al Pacino definitely time to like breathe and like the like let him kind of find this character. And like, I love, uh, I've got a very brief clip of him in court where he, t- like, just the way he, just to get a, a flavor of the way he talks. Your Honor, I mean it. This is the truth. I changed. I changed. And it didn't take no 30 years like your honor thought, but only five. That's right, sir. Five years. And look at me. Completely rehabilitated, reinvigorated, reassimilated, and finally going to be relocated. And I want to thank a lot of people for that. I look over there and I see that man there, Mr. Norwalk. I want to thank you so I, I I just love that that I don't know it's like a lyrical like twang to the way he speaks, especially when he says I I, I just I can listen to him say rehabilitated like <laughs> just just like every like on a loop because it's it's just it's just fantastic. Yeah, I've I've, I've got to agree with you that I think there is there is definitely mm-hmm. a humor to this. And it's funny that when De Palma tries to make an out and out comedy, it never works. But when when he just makes like a, a gangster film, they 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 turn out to be funny, or there's there's humour in in, in his just got to pepper films. it in. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I so, think that's such an amazing introduction to Carlito's character here and and Pacino's performance because it is undoubtedly big Pacino, but he manages to find a really good line between kind of the big Pacino and also just being quite low talking like low speaking like he's someone who listens he looks and listens a lot and i think that's what pays off quite a lot in the action scenes when they come and that that kind of pool hall sequence is so well done like the just the slow push in on pacino's face as he's kind of weighing up and you can just tell he's got so much like experience and and uh history behind the eyes of this world that he's re-entering and him just kind of looking around and it's, it's you know it's almost like the godfather with the, with the restaurant scene as well and just seeing him kind of clock things together and then just the editing between all the various things going on. And this is something the film does with every big set piece. Where in here it's kind of like, you know, we've got um, young John Ortiz like, reaching for the beer in the, in the cooler, uh, the empty cooler, all while Pacino and Carl- you know, Carlito is setting up this kind of trick shot to kind of get a bit of an upper hand when shit goes down. And, you know, uh, your boss is dead and so are you. It's such a great fucking line to, like, kick it all off. And then you suddenly get just this, these flashes of style where you get, I think it's like a quick split director shot and then the, the close-up on the shades with the, uh, with the knifeman walking between them, uh, between the two eyes. It's just amazing. And it suddenly just explodes and then, and then, and then ends again. And it's such a great way to get straight back into it where like, you know, he's been back in back on the outside for only like five, 10 minutes. And already it's like, Oh fuck, <laughs> there's no escaping. What's really interesting about that sequence as well is originally when they showed it to the studio, they had like a real problem with it. Said it was overly long and through, through the editing, they kept it the same length, but through the editing, you just mentioned Matt, they kind mm. of managed to keep a kinetic energy to it. It was exactly the same length, and the studio he- like heads kind of went. That's a lot better. Yeah, shorter. It's shorter. And they're like it's not, but we've just like kind of we've managed to fool you. And like it's almost like. And what's fascinating about it is the way that he says, like I think uh, Carlito says, I- I've got it written down here. He's like, this, uh, yeah, this ain't a trick. This is magic time. Like when he's saying about like the what he's gonna do with the pool trick, and it's kind of you're getting that with the 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 movie making as well. It's like. We're going to show you a scene that I don't know could be 
could be yeah. done in a boring way. And I think that's throughout this film. Like I kind of picked up on, there is a moment like early on in the film when uh, they first go to like a nightclub, Kleinfeld and Carlito. And like they're, they're, they're chatting one, he gets them dancing whilst they're chatting. But then like, even when they're just chatting at the bar, the camera's kind of just like floating around the room. And it's not just kind of like, a boring one, two, one, two shot. Do you know what I mean? There's something a bit, a bit more going on with it that it's like, I don't know. To to yeah, to to watch it as like a a, a movie fan, it's kind of like, oh, the performances are great, but then it's like mm-hmm. we're gonna we're gonna give you a chance to like, we're gonna give a bit of pizzazz with like the actual movie making as well, because like it's like the Palmer knows like exposition can be a bit boring. <laughs> there's something i want to mention actually well well i want to pick up on what matt said was about the eyes and i write about it in my book quite a bit about how de palma frames pacino's eyes quite a lot mm-hmm. in this film more than anything else it is about the eyes obviously you know the eyes don't lie chico um but it's kind of interesting how it's so close on everything. Like you think he's going to do it once or twice, but it's not, it's all the way through. It starts like that because obviously it starts with Carlito on the gurney. It ends with Carlito on the gurney as well. And the way that it's framed there. And there are numerous times where it just picks up on Pacino's eyes, which is really interesting as well, because obviously he's, you know, he's got that huge hair, which is beautifully manicured and everything else. And he's got this beard as well, which is, you know, I mean, it's close to yours, Petros, the beard. <laughs> it's close. Um, it all looks it, amazing in profile. Exactly, yes. It's very boot-polished um, beard, thing, right? It's, it's like boot-polished it <laughs> yeah. <armor> as well. <laughs> but when you look at Carlito, the only thing that you can really see are his eyes. Everything else is covered with hair. <laughs> and De Palma decides, right, I'm going to focus on this all the way through, and Pacino is going to act with his eyes. And we know he's capable of that because he's done it in The Godfather. He did it in, uh, you know, he, he did it in Serpico as well, Dog Day Afternoon as well. I mean, he's done it throughout his entire bloody life. But it's interesting. You see it more in Carlito's way than you do in any of the other movies. And I think that just goes to show the connection that Pacino and De Palma had. Well, you know, since working on Scarface and then going on to this film as well, is that they decided, let's change it up. Let's not make it about showing all of Pacino. Um, Let's narrow it down to something. Let's narrow it down to something. And, you know, I think it's exemplified in um, one of my favourite scenes, actually. One of my all-time favourite scenes in this movie is when... um, Carlito is obviously hugely in love with Penelope Ann Miller's character and she's keeping him at arm's length and he goes to her apartment and she keeps the chain on and he's just (laughs) sort of peering through that little gap and she's slowly taking her clothes off away. And once again, the camera just focuses in on Pacino's face and all you can see is the eyes. And you're like, this is a man who is in love. You kind of forget that he's a gangster. That's the yes. thing. And I, I I write about that in the book is that this is a romance film. This is not a crime movie. Take the crime bits out, the fact that he used to be a gangster and, you know, he's still got some nefarious people around him. Take that out. This is a romance film. Mm-hmm. Pure and simple. And I think what it cleverly does, and from knowing previous, like, big Pacino performances from before, is obviously, like, we get a... We get a 
feeling from other characters from his past life that that's how he used to be like he used to be a big swinging dick on the streets and i think someone says to him about like the way benny blanco is he's like that was you i think sasso says to him, that was you 20 years ago and it's like oh so it's got that like almost like mm-hmm. meta subtext to it where it's like we could definitely see pacino being that big brash guy but this yeah and like you said it is it is a love story. What's that kind of needle mm. drop you get in that scene? Where yeah, I, I've kind of dubbed it so horny he breaks the lock scene, uh, and and it's <laughs> need, there's a needle drop at the end. Is it? Is it? Oh, um, I'm so. Yeah, is it? I, I'm so. It must be true. Eyes off. Is it? I can't take my eyes off of you. That's no. I yeah, yeah. It is. It is. Right, it comes back at the end. I think it's. <laughs> I think it's earlier as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you're right. It's like it's an amazing thing. Like, you know, I think there are some explicit uh, parallels, but this very much is sort of Pacino and De Palma's Casablanca in a way, you know, because he's he's a guy escaping like a past. He has this past romance that he's trying to rekindle. He owns a bar. (laughs) He mentions at one point he's Humphrey Bogarting it around. And uh, it's very true. It's like, you know, about all this colorful cast of characters around him trying to uh in this film you know bring him back to his old ways and i think as well as that it's about someone who is just incapable of seeing how the world's kind of moved on and it's quite you know it's a tragedy as well where when you can't see that you're now the old man or you're too arrogant to accept it that you know someone else might be coming up behind you doing the exact same shit that you did before and obviously back then when that was you 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 pushed ahead with that and thought you were the the hot shit and now you're so full of yourself here and it's interesting that it's not because he's someone out to get back on top of the gangster food chain like he's not out of prison trying to reclaim like a territory he is explicitly trying to get out the whole time and just do what he can but he can't let go of uh the way he he approaches like the next generation essentially and and, you know for anyone kind of getting on a bit and recognizing the youth (laughs) around (laughs) you it's just like oh man yeah he needs to open his eyes and see that this is going to bite him in the ass yeah Yeah. that that whole like there's a a, you know going back to the romance thing as well is that it is rare you know that we we see a film that um has so much red hot romance in it. Let's be honest. I mean, the the romance between Carlito and Gail is very sexy, very sexy, and it's rare to see something like that when the two people, the two actors playing that, were having an affair at the same time. Oof. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think I've read about that, and apparently, when it came to the uh, <laughs> to the to the premiere of this film, Al Pacino kind of didn't even look at her. Do you know what I mean? Like his, his big bulging eyes didn't go anywhere near her. Like it's like, oh, uh, I better go with my wife. Well, well, I mean, at the time, uh, Pacino's with Lyndall Hobbs, who British actress, director as well. As he was with him for a long, uh, he was with her for a long, long time, and then obviously they were having an affair. The press found out as well, and how hounded Penelope Ann Miller didn't hound Pacino at all, but hounded her all about it. Um, you know, but going back to it. Obviously, they were having this passionate love affair. We can't comment on, you know, I'm not going to comment on private matters. I mean, that's, that's you know, that's for uh, newspapers and, you know, gossip <laughs> rags. Um, but it is rare to see so much passion on screen and then know that it was the same off screen as well. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, it's it's really interesting to hear something like that when you tell people that, yes, they were having an affair. Normally, you know, the, the on, st- uh, on screen 
romance is a bit lackluster. You're kind of like, yeah, it's all right, but no, not this, not no, this. Yes, white, white hot, right? Um, yeah, oh. their chemistry is amazing, and and you know there is a 24 year age gap between them as well, and so it's like you know for for one thing that could maybe mess with screen chemistry, the real life affair off is maybe fueling it back up again. So it ends up being this really unique. <laughs> Unique powder cake mix between them, and yeah, you totally believe it the whole way. Uh, well, one 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 thing when we were talk, talk about the cast in this, uh, one bit of information I I came across at one point before Sean Penn like stepped in to play Kleinfeld, there was a version of this film with Marlon Brando attached to play Kleinfeld, and uh, Elliot uh, Kastner, the producer ended up trying to file a lawsuit against Al Pacino because he was supposed to do his version of uh, a Carlito story, which like, I think this is based on the book After Hours, I think it's called. like The book's called After, uh, After mm. Hours, but obviously they couldn't call the film After Hours because that obviously had already been taken by Martin Scorsese. So... um <laughs> What yeah, but but yeah, what do you guys think of Sean Penn in this? And what do you think of a world where where Marlon Brando is in Carlito's way? Uh what do you what do you think about that, Matt? That's bloody wild. Like I, I love Sean Penn in this. I think he's really good. And it's clearly a part that, you know, has inspired so much because obviously there's um GTA Vice City, of course, inspired a lot with Scarface and this film. There's a character in that very much based on him. Uh, but also Paul Kay's comedy creation, Mike Strutter, uh, which I'm a big fan of, which is just blatantly uh, Kleinfeld as the coked up lawyer with frizzy hair and <laughs> doing the exact same accent. Um, but he's great. And it's a really, it's a really, truly um, strong support and performance where he has this sort of parallel story throughout and all these little twists and turns as well. And he just gives it such genuine, jittery, cocky energy, um, you know, going from uh you know shagging uh benny's benny's girl at the club and then just swinging his dick around in front of the floor and then and then just being all pissed off with people on his lawn at his party and then getting further and further into it and the, and the shit-eating grin on his face when by the time carlito is saying you know you're not a lawyer no more you're a gangster you're on the other side it's different now and he's just like yeah yeah i'll be fine i'll be fine it's just that you can't wait to see him get his comeuppance and and you know the way that unfolds i'm sure we'll talk on is 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 beautiful well, I, yeah, and I, I love like the kind of the the beginning of his kind of downfall. Right, is when he visits uh, Tony in, in in at Rikers, which I think like gives me one of my favourite shots in this film, which is like one of those moments where you see a director do something where it's like you are just flexing your muscles here. You didn't have to do that, but it's that kind of that tracking shot of him walking down the gangway to Rikers Island. And then the camera keeps going out and out and out, and you realise, oh, this is a this is a helicopter shot. And then the camera just swings <laughs> round to reveal Riker's Island, and it's just a real like, you know what I mean, like the Palmer going, I, I fucking still got it, guys. I know you gave me a hard time for Casualties of War and um, Bonfire of the Vanities, but I, I can still pull it out the bag yeah. here in the early nineties. Um, no drones back then, wasn't that easy? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll get onto some of the. I think I think this this film took a long a long time to, to to film. I know that they said uh it started in the winter and got all the way to the summer of filming and Al Pacino had definitely regretted the fact that his character has a leather jacket on all the time and I think when they were filming <laughs> some of the like subway stuff later on in the film he just got fed up one day and just like got on the subway and went home. 
when they were supposed to be filming because it was like <laughs> too fucking hot we've been doing such long days i fucking had enough of this um so yeah mark what do you think of um uh sean penn as kleinfeld in this i mean if <laughs> sean penn's kleinfeld is basically tony montana with a job <laughs> that's that's it you know if if tony montana wasn't gunned down and decided to go legit that would kind of be him i think and i think that's why you've got that wonderful crisscross from carlito's way to scarface because there is an instantly likable and then an instantly dislikable person in both of them uh kleinfeld i think you know Let's be honest, in another world, that could have been Pacino because it is that larger-than-life character that Pacino liked to do, especially in the 90s where, you know, he was shouting and whatever else. That could have been Pacino. It could have been role-reversed, but it's not. And I kind of like the fact that Sean Penn goes all out. I mean, you mentioned Casualties of War a minute ago. That's one of my favourite war films of all time. I think it's amazing. Um and Sean Penn's brilliant in that. And, you know, he hounded Michael J. Fox by calling him a TV actor all the way through that. I love that piece of trivia. I think it's amazing. But, you know, in this one, it's just so extravagant. And it goes back to what I was saying in that, you know, way De Palma would film, it, his style is like aggressive. And I think Penn picked up on that. And obviously, let's not forget that at that time, I think Penn was heavily involved with uh, Madonna and obviously there was all the, you know, the fighting going on at the premieres and everything else like that. So Sean Penn was already coming with this sort of attitude of he's going to beat the shit out of you, whether it's in, in the film or in real life as well. But I just think it's, it's a wonderful performance. It's so over the top. And yet at the same time, it's kind of in keeping with what you would expect somebody to be like that at that time. You know, you just, you don't think it's out of place at any point. Um, you know, you were mentioning there actually about uh, Steffi, who's obviously the the girl mm. in the in the scene. Well, I interviewed the the young lady who played Steffi, and she said, you know, working next to Pacino and Penn was fantastic. They were both very very giving, um, and she had no problems whatsoever. She she you know was very happy to um, be part of that world and actually got to really enjoy it and i think that's something interesting is that you look at somebody like sean penn giving this type of performance you think god i bet it was an absolute bloody nightmare working out <laughs> this guy but then when you have somebody who was treated like shit to be honest with you you know that character is treated like shit by kleinfeld and the actress says it was a really good you know it was a really good experience for me i think that shows when you have actors who are all working on the same level and know what they want to do with this character um, you know, I think we've all heard the stories, the horror stories of method actors thinking it's method and it's not, you know, uh, you know, you, there's some people <laughs> out there. being who, a dick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the thing. You know, there's some people think they're, they're doing method. You're like, you're, you're really not, you know, you, Pacino does method. Brando did method. Some of this stuff is not method. So, um, yeah, I just think it's, it's such an outlandish performance. And I think probably Penn had such a good time doing it as well if he didn't there was something wrong because it did seem like he's having such a good time of going i'm just going to go all out crazy mm -hmm. i think there was only one kind of dispute between De palmer and pen on this film and like pen just wanted to keep going on a certain scene and 
Palmer's like, we've got it, got it. And like, <laughs> like I think De, De Palmer from, from watching him in an interview seems like he doesn't really give a shit. Like, do you know what I mean? He's kind of like, I don't, I don't really care. Like he said, he, he was like, he called him up that night to continue having a go at him. Like, <laughs> he was like, I, I just wanted another take. I wanted another take. And he's like, we've got, to, we've got to fucking move on. Like there's a lot to do in this, in, in this movie. But I think, yeah, I think, I think Penn's great. And I love the fact that, he decided that, like, to shave his own hair back to get that kind of balding look, like for, for the Kleinfeld look, and it's I, I don't know, it just makes as a balding <laughs> man, like, yeah, there's there, there's something there's something I don't know inherently like shade, especially when your hair's long. I think people who have long hair and it's balding always look a little bit sinister, <laughs> whether it, whether it is Warren Ellis or not. Um, so. Well, is there, is, there, is, there, is there anything else we should talk about before we get to the kind of climactic uh, moment of this? That is kind of what, about half hour, the mm. last half hour of this film is kind of all go, well, I go, guess, go, go, go. I guess go. with Kleinfeld as well, you've got two other amazing instances of great editing. First, when he's about to be stabbed outside the lift, and this is again... And that more really great moments to do with eyes and, and close-ups with him just looking from... It's great when you have a scene like this and, and the director has, you know, picked a certain thing within the, within the location to kind of focus on, here being the, the little light for the, for the lift coming down and just the build-up again of tension of being like, something's coming and, and Kleinfeld's kind of onto it and he keeps having that looking down the corridor where it's that kind of like long shot and you're seeing who's coming and it's kind of like people start off far away enough that you, you squint a bit and you're like... Uh, is this normal? Is this someone? And then back to the light, which is up close, and then back to long again, and all this. And he's next to that big guy right next to him as well. And then finally, the the sort of you know knifeman comes out behind behind the woman right when the lifts open as well. So it's like like a raptor attack, you know. It's uh it's both sides, um, and that's just an amazing <laughs> piece of build up as well. And then of course you know when he when he gets got in the in the hospital room, when you realise Carlito took the bullets, and it's just that amazing kind of cut between of uh the, the the bullets in the in the trash and uh adios counselor and then it's just it's just perfect the reveals because i think it gets to his empty gun clicking first before and that's when he realizes is when we realize and it's just an amazing synchronicity well i know that there was a big problem for pacino and pen regarding the fact like neither of them believed that Carlito would actually go back to the hospital like for them like and like I know David Kep had to keep keep rewriting, rewriting until they were both happy. Because it is one of those things where if you kind of look at it under the like the, the microscope, it is that thing of like the guy wanted to get out of town. So why the hell would he go go to that hospital? And I know I know it works with the film because it it creates like this pressure cooker thing, and very cleverly as well. Kind of it's it's so high stakes, mm. high pressure at that moment. That you don't even think about it, do you know what I mean? You you, you just chalk it down to whether it's. I think that's maybe like the code of yeah. Honor. I think it's maybe like the last remnant of the old Carlito, where it's like you know you see how much he's feels betrayed when he has to listen to that recording in, in the you know with the cops, and it's like you know he's he's been trying to get out this whole time, and this is maybe the one time you know he kind of feels obliged to like help with the uh, the mission on the boat to go save slash kill the, uh, the the main gangster guy. But here it feels like, oh, if I'm going to do one thing, it's going to be, you know, no one does, no one betrays me like this. So he's he's getting he's getting some real sweet revenge because uh, yeah, setting up setting up a fall as opposed to even doing it yourself is pretty cold. Um, and he would have got away with it too if it wasn't for these pesky 
well, not kids, but <laughs> many, many Text surrounding forces closing in. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, you were saying, is there anybody else we should talk about? We should yeah. mention John Leguizamo as Benny Blanco from the Bronx because he does kind of forget. It does kind of get forgotten about a little bit when you're talking about Colleta's way because obviously Pacino and Sean Penn and De Palma. But really, you know, it's such a great performance because he comes in as the cock of the walk, very much on the same level as uh, Kleinfeld, and he stays like that all the way through. Um, as you were saying earlier, Matt, you know, you've got this young one who's coming up and trying to take over. And um, he, yeah, he's a guy who you're never sure about at any point. You know that he's going to be trouble. That's fine. But there are times where you're like, who is this guy? What, what's, mm. what is he doing? You know, where's he coming from? I can't really get a handle on him at all. And then there are other times where you're like, OK, this guy is just a mean motherfucker. Yeah. And, you know, he's happy to carry a gun into a nightclub. Um, and, you know, it all culminates in a really smart bit of um, assassination at the end. Let's be honest, you know, the way he thought about doing the, you know, the broken arm and using mm -hmm. that as the gun is a very clever way. And then leaning in and uh, obviously delivering the line as well. And I just think it's a very, very good performance yeah. that... John Leguizamo never gets enough recognition for at all, which is a shame because it is, you know, I think there are a lot of performances out there, certainly in crime movies, that have copied Benny Blanco yeah. and they've never really said it because it is that type of performance that you can easily copy and slightly tweak, but John mm -hmm. Leguizamo was there doing it. Yeah, I totally agree. It's yeah, an amazing first. piece of casting because he, you're right, he does kind of come across as someone who could be someone playing gangster a bit who's a bit out of his depth but also being quite sinister and he plays that really really well and i think i think it might even be almost like a case of the rule of three as well where you see him like once and twice and then by the time you see him the third time it's him you know getting thrown out and that that, that, that so deliberately feels like the end of that subplot because that's kind of all it is at this point so it's such an amazing way to make you forget about him because even though you know he said outright, like, I'm going to kill you, we already know that Luis Guzman is spying for him. So you've got all these kind of clues. And I think the genius of the way it plays into the finale is because the finale is so lengthy and so focused on like the Italians, it does make you forget about Benny. And so they play all these different um, you know, complications up when it comes to will he escape or not. And by the time you kind of think he's free, of course it's Benny that steps in. It's that genius kind of twist ending where it's like, it was right there the whole time, but when watching it, you don't quite see it. And that's saying it as um, a film that literally opens with the shooting. So you knew, you definitely knew it was coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And watching yeah, it back, yeah. you can, at the beginning, yeah. you can see it's Benny, but obviously you don't, you don't know him yet and he's in a different colored suit and everything. But it's, um, you know, it's a film that gets to do the classic, uh, yep, that's me. You're probably wondering how I ended up here, uh, opening, but does it exactly how it should be? And this is, this is De Palma playing in, I wouldn't even call it, you know, cliche, cliche now maybe, this kind of structure, but just making it work in the context of the film and story so uh, elegantly. Well, I, I think it's interesting to the point of De Palma's career as well, because obviously, as we said, like, Casualties of War and Bonfire the Vanities, uh, probably left, it, left him a little bit jaded. And you, you see around this time, 92, 93, he very much returns to, to films with subject matter that he 
knows knows so well. So like with uh, Raising Kane, a film I discussed on the last episode, uh, is him kind of doing a greatest hits of his kind of Hitchcockian thrillers. And then this is very much he's going, right, we've got stuff. We, we, I, I'm going back to the gangster world. So I'm, I'm, I'm taking a bit of the, the untouchables. I'm taking a bit of what I did with Scarface and kind of making it this kind of, I don't know, like epic. This kind of feels like his epic, right? This is like if the, definitely the longest De Palma film out there, I, I believe. Do you know, it's, it's, it's interesting you use the word epic, which is a word that I don't think anybody uses for Carlito's way, even though it is two and a half hours, and even though it is ultimately quite epic, I think people don't use it because epic normally means obviously a long movie, but also it means huge, vast landscapes and huge cinematography and everything else like that. And people don't think about Carlito's way like that because it was shot predominantly in New York and because it was shot in very close quarters. People don't think about it like that. But really, you're right. It probably is epic. You know, you think about the shot on top of the roof where it's raining and Carlito's got the trash can over the head looking at Gale from afar. I mean, that's a wonderful piece of cinematography. Um, right up there with a, a lot of stuff that would be classed as amazing cinematography, but it kind of, I think it kind of gets forgotten about because it's such a, mm. it's in a close knit community rather than anything else. You know, it's not going out into the, the vast world. Okay, yes, Gail ends up going to, uh, you know, a very nice island <laughs> um, on Carlito's money. But at the same time, it's, it, you know, it's not like that. That's the thing. I think the only time, I mean, obviously we're going to talk about it now, I guess, but the only time a lot of people would say epic is that final half an hour, which, Deserves the word epic, really, but uh, I, I do think you're right there, uh, Petros, that it is, it is an epic film. There's no two ways about it. But I, I just don't think people call mm -hmm. it that yeah. at all, and which I is think, a bit of a shame. I think it very much leans on the kind of noirish tropes as well. I'm always reminded of that moment when they take Benny out into the alley, and the way that that alley's lit and stuff like that. It looks like a kind of like, and even the way I don't know, it's kind of like uh noir through very much through the lens mm -hmm. of brian de palma because like that that the, the like instead of dark shadow sometimes it's like that that bit in the hallway before he throws him down the stairs it's like just that red light but then you still got the shadows and stuff like that and then yeah, it goes into the alley which looks like it should just be covered in mm. smoke as well or even even the kind of uh i don't know the big the, the big rescue slash murder at rikers like is just bellowed in smoke and stuff like that and kind of Oh yeah, I think I think you can picture it happening I in the forties, can't you? In, in you know four by three in black and white, especially out on the boat. It's yeah, it feels off the time. If you think, if you just transpose this plot just about like a gangster, like get rid of the heroine like subplot and stuff like that. This could be if if they had said Scarface and Carlito's Way were both remakes of kind of classic gangster films from like the thirties. I would go, yeah, you, 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 like, of course they are, like, because Carlito's way, it feels like it, and it's like, hmm. as I said, yeah, it feels, it feels like a noir, and he's, as you said, he's, he says he's Humphrey Bogart in it, and it's like, he, mm -hmm. he knows what he's doing, and yeah, I, I think it's really grand and epic. I think, I think that's like, yeah, when I say epic, it just feels grand, like, even though, like you said, Mark, it is kind of all quite close knit within New York, and I guess the big grand set piece 
of this film is the grand central chase. But before we get to that moment, a, a, a moment I love is that tension that's built up when the uh, free attack, like the free Italian or four Italian dudes, come and visit Carlito at the club, and we get like again. I think it's a a, a Brian De Palma like trope trick is the that um, kind of like the camera just spinning around in a circle, kind of mm. all the faces and like background again, just kind of yeah. That 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 that's a beautiful shot. But like that, the tension from there on out, kind of is squeaky bum time, right? Up until that that shot that that, that takes Carlito's oh, life, right? If if you look carefully, obviously George Porcel is in that who played Sasa. You look carefully, you can see him reading. <laughs> the lines off a piece of card because he didn't speak English. <laughs> he had no clue about English. So if you look carefully, you can see his eyes just move to the right a little bit when he's speaking and he's phonetically saying it. Um, so that's why when he's in there, when he speaks in the films, it's a very, it's a struggle at times because he didn't speak English at all. But De Palma thought, let's put him in there because he'd seen him on TV. <laughs> And he thought he was a funny guy, so they put him in there, not knowing that he didn't speak English at That's all. Amazing. Uh, yeah. What What do you make of um, that kind of that those moments in the club, Matt? Like, like when it's when he when he's trying to get the money and he's trying to escape. Like, they're all they're all so great. All the club scenes are amazing. Whether it's you know tension boiling up between, uh, you know, sort of rebuffing Benny's uh, gestures of goodwill, or or moments like this, or 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 when. Um, uh, you know, Sean Penn is um, deliberately kind of picking a fight with the guy dancing, um, uh, dancing with um, God, what's the name? Um, Gail. With Gail, yeah. And then into this end bit when he's, this is where the chase kind of starts, really, and it starts off being deliberately claustrophobic and oppressive because it's really leans into that feeling of knowing that everyone wants you dead, basically, and like you know your time's running out. And and Pacino again given some amazing kind of back and forth face face acting and i think you know the camera knows this and so swirling around it's, it's never kind of cutting away to give you any kind of break and I, and I love that he kind of escapes out of you know the smallest kind of little hatch in there um before like birthing out onto the street and then it just carries on um and of course you know this is a incredible like disco movie and it's funny like you said how it feels like a 40s noir and it's also so very much like a 70s scuzzy new york film like i i don't think of it as a 90s film at all like i often have to remind myself that it's 993 because you know it feels like it could be genuinely a 70s american de palma movie with an older pacino somehow um and it's just it's just amazing. I can't picture like present day nineties making it look seventies with giving it this forties feel. Like it's an amazing kind of timeless kind of uh uh sheen over this whole thing. It's great. I, I think that is a filmmaker, right, who knows his knows his film history to be able to like filter that stuff through by making it feel like the times in which like it's evoking, whether it is like set in the seventies but having that forties thing. And Brian De Palma, I've watched an interview with him recently, and he kind of said, like, especially around the 90s, he's like, and I guess he's making barbs at people like Tarantino, because he's kind of saying, like, everyone's kind of, like, cutting and pasting their references. And, like, like De Palma kind of can't really say that in one <laughs> regard, because obviously he's just aped Hitchcock for most of his career and kind of taken stuff wholesale from him. But, like, 
I think I know what what he does mean in a way. Do you know what I mean? In that regards to, he he likes to think he he must think about himself that he is very much like he knows that stuff so well that it's embedded and he's he's he, it's it's a part of his DNA. Where it's it's not like I don't know this shot is exactly from this movie. It's kind of yeah, De Palma has managed to be the torchbearer. I think from Hitchcock as opposed to being mm. the, like a. Uh, uh, I don't know, like a his shadow, as such. But um, yeah, Mark, what what do you think of the that that chase? Like, yeah, what did do you have? Did you have any insights? Did you speak to anyone who was involved with this chase, or what did you write about it in the book? No, I didn't speak to anybody who was involved in it. Um, I only spoke to uh, the young lady who played Steffi. But uh, I mean, that foot chase. So I I had to find out quite a bit about it because obviously it's a bit that everybody <laughs> knows whether you've seen the film or not. You know, I think the Simpsons have ripped it off millions <laughs> of times, so everybody knows it through that anyway. Um, but it was shot over several months. It wasn't all done in, um, you know, one fluid motion or anything else like that. They started it in the winter. They finished it in the middle of summer. So you can imagine how sweaty Pacino was at that time. You know, you had mentioned earlier <laughs> that he decided to go home at one point, and he did. Um, but it starts, I mean, for anybody who knows the geography of New York, they'll, pro they'll probably understand this a bit more then. So it starts um, at Brooklyn, Smith and Ninth Street Station, which was actually going to, which was actually playing Broadway and 7th goes through the escalators of the Grand Central Station. And at the time, because they were filming, they had to reroute all the subway trains um, and reorder them as well. So if they had to come in to Grand Central, they had to time it so they weren't filming as well. That, you know, so it was all, you know, timing and everything. Um, and part of the problem was obviously trying to keep it so it looked like it was still the same time period when they'd shot some bits in the winter, some bits in the summer. So you kind of have to make sure that Pacino's not sweating and not cold in the other one as well. Um, but the obviously the long tracking shot um, was actually fudged. It should have been longer. I don't think people know this, but it was um, fucked up at the last minute by a first AD who uh, had taken a wrong sign to basically... Um, pan over to Pacino before he was ready for that one moment. So they actually had to stop filming. And then they decided, well, we haven't got time to redo this at all because of the amount that's going into it, you know, resetting it all the way back. It's going to have to be fixed in the editing suite. So that scene alone could have been longer if somebody hadn't. God, that's incredible up. to have a mistake like that. And it's still is incredible like you wouldn't know you wouldn't be like oh i see what they're trying to do but it's a fail it's like that is a good save they're <laughs> like they could save it yeah 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 well it was saved i'll tell you how it was saved it was saved by a cutaway to one of the guys who was chasing him so when you watch it again you don't really notice it this is the thing you're you're constantly thinking this is one long take and that's the clever thing and all of us have seen one shot movies and then months or years later, we found out, oh, they had a bloody edit in there. Oh, God, they did that really well. And that's the same with Carlito as well. You look at it and you think this is one huge tracking shot. There is a cutaway to somebody. But because it's been so long, your brain doesn't quite mm. register that it's cut away. Instead, it just continues going, yes, yes, it's the same camera. It's doing the same thing. It's changing around. So it's, it's a very clever edit, really. Um, but in terms of the scene itself, I mean, that... 
it's just so intense, yeah. isn't it? Even the bit where he's laid down on the escalator and you're thinking he's got away with this. He's got away with this. And then the fat guy who's out of breath. I mean, God bless that guy, really, <laughs> because that would have been me, to be honest with you. You know, running across there and trying, you know, he sees him at the last minute and you're like, oh, my God, we're back into it again. So you have that brief respite where you think he's got away with it. Colito's away. He's going to meet Gail. This is the moment. And then it starts again. And you're like, how, how do you keep this level of intensity? But that's the clever thing about Brian De Palma. He keeps that level of intensity mm -hmm. for, what, 40 minutes? Yeah. I, 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 that's crazy. I think they needed to, especially with the escalators, they needed to keep that level of tension because I know that the editors, and they need a massive, like, uh, shout out on this. It's uh, Christina Bowden and Bill Pankow, um, who managed to, like, because they, they were worried about, like, the geography of the escalators or just the kind of, how long do you know what I mean like somebody like cutting away from it like people would be like how long is that escalator so they had to they had to kind of really figure it out in the edit so people can kind of keep it again quite kinetic and, and moving and using quicker edits so your brain didn't have that opportunity to go wait a second it was halfway down the escalator and now we've gone to this because it goes to that amazing like a bird's eye view shot of him like kind of laying on the escalator and by that time he's like in the middle of it and it's like i'm sure when he passed uh when he passed like the the gangster on the other side he was near the middle it's like he would have been yeah at the it definitely wasn't that long because like, we, we went down it in real time with the steady cam so it's like you know whoosh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's amazing it's like you know there's so many great complications to this whole scene and that's 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 great writing and filmmaking you know you got to make it hard for your characters It'd be all too easy to just have like a pretty simple chase of one or two things that go wrong. And, and the way to think to really up the attention is to make it seem like it's now going right. Now it's going wrong again. And, you know, throughout this whole thing, you've got him from once he's out of the bar, you've got those, those, those guys on the platform holding up the train, which allows the others to catch up with him. You've got uh, Carlito hiding behind the cops, using, using the cops as kind of like a shield and then hiding behind the balloons and then sort of basically escaping when he gets to the top of the escalator but needing to go down the same way they've gone. So it's like, you know, if this was any other situation, he could escape, but he needs to go where they've gone. So that's like, fuck. And then, of course, you know, it is the, is the, big, the big fat guy who kind of like the one who couldn't chase him and was, again, like Benny, almost forgotten about since we saw a quick glimpse of him on the train. It comes to him to be the one to discover him again, just through sheer circumstance of where he is. And then, you know, by the time it finally looks like he's escaping, then you then you hit him with hit him with a Benny. And uh, you know, someone who's not even a part of the chase, but who's been the smoking gun all along. And I think, you know, as we said, I think that reveal of him is one of the best reveals, you know, in cinema. It's it's incredible. Yeah. I, I, I have to I have to make note of the fact that uh mutual friend of ours, Matt, uh Liam H. Dempsey, uh sent me a letterbox list that he has which is called um <laughs> i think it's something it, like it's benny it's called like the benny from the bronx list and it's basically films where a character who's established in the first act disappears for the rest of the film and then murders the protagonist at the end <laughs> of the movie and um i do have to blame him slightly because i i, I ruined two, <laughs> two films for myself the other two films on that uh, list i have not seen so i'm now like Ah, so uh, yeah, look at that list at your own peril. I'll, I might put it in the show notes for this episode. So it's interesting you were saying earlier, Petros, about De Palma, Hitchcock ripping off and everything. Um, 
in my book, I always put what the critics had written about the film. So I always picked out like three quotes from, you know, some of the classic uh, um, film critics from back in the day. The New York Times said, Mr. De Palma ends his film with a sequence Hitchcock mm. might have envied. Oh, that's got that, that that's got to be like a he's got to have had a good night's sleep that night, right? After reading that, oh, De Palma, <laughs> so I finally did it. I beat him. <laughs> well, I mean, you say that, and I would be the same. I'd be like, look at that, get that on the wall. However, the Chicago Reader said. If Brian De Palma has made a duller movie than this 144-minute snooze fest, I count myself fortunate to have missed it. Wow, that is... That, that... Gives with one hand, takes with the other. Oh. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Critics, what do they know? The fucking bar. I think if I was a famous filmmaker who was making big films, I'd need to see like the absolute like bootlicking praise review to get a bit of the ego, and then the one that just fucking hates it, and be like, if I can have those two for everything I make... I've got no reason to complain because I'm like, cool. I know there's two sides to this. <laughs> I can never have to be annoyed at it. <laughs> so is there anything else that we kind of need to talk about in this? Oh, well, I think there's something I wanted to bring up and it's quite interesting in regards to the fact that that moment when he throws Benny down the stairs, because it all really ties into that. It's like, it, I, I love the fact that that is the opportunity to like, he could get out then. He could, he could, well, not get out, but he could avoid what is inevitable fate at the end of this if he just stepped back into his own world. And it is like, like I think he says earlier in the film, he says to Gail, it would like, it will be just my luck that like everything will go, like somebody will bring a gun into the club and we'll get shut down. And it's, I love that seed, like the seeding throughout, whether mm. it's like, her saying that that's not the guy I used to know. And like, because obviously we have no reference point to who Carlito used to be five years before he went in prison. But I love that the film gives you so much, like, kind of little breadcrumbs as opposed to big, like, kind of, I don't know, you don't have to, you don't have to hear somebody go on a big story of the stuff he used yeah. to do. You just kind of get little bits here and there, whether it's like, hey, you used to have eight, eight, eight like, 9,000 guys on yeah. the street. And that's what you? builds the character. That's what builds the mystique, you know. Not everything needs to be explained away and, and backstoried out and franchised away. It's like, this is it. Some people, half of the uh, thrill of the character is not knowing because you get through context clues who they are. Like You get it. You don't need it all spelled out. And it's great. And, and I believe there is a prequel to this, isn't it, from 2005, The Rise to Power, which I haven't seen, um, I, which I, I think covers some of the other books or at least maybe the first half of them you know some of the older stuff but yeah no interest, <laughs> no interest so, there. yeah so that that film actually is based on the book carlito's way yeah and then obviously carlito's way is the book uh the second the after the, hours edwin torres yeah book uh yeah. after hours so like yeah i've got no I've, i think i've seen it on a cex shelf and kind of I've spat at it, <laughs> walked away, disappointed because I saw the I saw the Carlitos Way font. I was like, oh, I got Carlitos Way. I need to get that on physical. And then like realize, oh, it's the fuck it. It's the prequel. No, thank you. <laughs> we should mention, actually, this is one thing we should mention because it's it's not brought up that much, is that obviously, as you were saying earlier, Petros, that uh, the producer um, filed a lawsuit before the film was even made. The film actually ended with a lawsuit thrown against it as well. 
um, because American lawyer Alan Dershowitz, who in the past has represented people like Mike Tyson and Jeffrey Epstein, um, threatened to sue De Palma and Penn and Universal because he thought Jeffrey Kleinfeld was based on him. (laughs) (laughs) Now that takes some big headedness to think of yourself of, yeah, you see that guy who's like a self-destructive, narcissistic, (laughs) coke-headed lawyer. This is unlicensed biopic, how dare they? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway, it didn't go anywhere, basically. Um, It it never went before the court. Um, Because... (laughs) How do you take something like that to court and turn around and go, yes, well, you see the scenes where he's (laughs) taking drugs. Here's some photos of me taking drugs as well. Uh, And here's me laundering some money as well. (laughs) And that time when I killed somebody as well. Yes, 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 yes. That's all copied on me. So I I do find it interesting. I mean, films are always subjected to lawsuits after they come out anyway. You know, I had the idea of this and whatever else. But I find it interesting that a high-profile American lawyer, Alan Dershowitz, tried to sue because he thought Kleinfeld was based on him. I'm, I'm actually looking at a photo of um, Alan Dershowitz right now. And I, the, the only thing I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if, if the the stuff about his personal life and what he got up to uh, away from it, he does look a little bit like uh, the Kleinfeld character. He is, is, is a balding man <laughs> with kind of um, like kind of, pre-balding Larry David like if you've ever seen those old photos when he used to have big like curly hair it kind of kind of looks a bit like that but he's dressed like Mr Bean in this photo that I've I've, I've got up right <laughs> now so uh, yeah he's um yeah what a what a bizarre what talk about ratting on yourself do you know what I mean like kind of going yeah that's that's based on me that is that's I mean, that's, that's a lose-lose, isn't it? Either you lose a lawsuit or you win it but at what cost? <laughs> like yes, this is me <laughs> I'm pointing out the fact that you are a piece of shit. Um, <laughs> uh, just just going through my notes here to double check if uh, there's anything that we've missed. I guess the we just have to mention quickly the score of this film because it's a uh, Patrick Doyle music is phenomenal, and uh, we're not even like that's that's not even talking about the kind of needle drops we get through this mm, kind of so many needle drops. The the perfectly placed ones as well. When you get um, Viggo Mortensen who is in this film, Aragorn himself. Uh, in the background in the club, you can hear the OJ's backstabbers like playing, and it's like perfect because obviously, like he's come in this guy who's clearly a rat, and uh, Carlito's kind of sussed him out straight away, right? He's like, he's like, oh yeah, um, how comes you're out of prison so quickly? And he's like, oh, like you, uh, I got him with the right guys. I, 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 I read a lot of books and stuff like that, and then we get the reveal of the wire and stuff like that. But I think. Yeah, just that kind of that using that needle drop in the background is perfect. It's so weird because um, me and me and the Spotlight Boys used to make these these short films. We made one in between uni years back in like two thousand five, and used "Got to Be Real" by Cheryl Lynn, probably because we'd seen it in this, uh, heard it in this. <laughs> and at that time, you know, this film was only twelve years old, and it has now been longer since we made that film than it has since that film was out when we made that film. It's just like, oh god, time. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, as well, is with with some of those tracks, not the score, but the tracks that they use, they could so easily have used more popular songs from that period. You know, you see films now that just use the most popular ones because everybody knows them. 
and that mm-hmm. that's going to appeal to a mass market. Whereas Carlito's Way is a little bit more sophisticated in its song choices. Um, in the ones where you go, okay, this is a, I like this song. Who is it? I, I vaguely recall it. It's that sort of choice where they've gone, let's not go for the obvious. Let's go for something else. Um, and um, myself and Alan Jones, who's obviously one of the co-directors of, of Fright Fest here in the UK, we, we've had long discussions about the brilliant use of disco music in this because Alan's a big disco fan and has written for um, lots of inlays for disco compilations. And we both agree it's one of the best um, movies to display real disco, as in, you know, the, mm-hmm. the location and the choices. Because there are places, you know, there's films out there that just go, oh, it's hit after hit after hit after hit. And you go, that's not how it works in a club. You know, they would be playing <laughs> something that now is classed as shit because it was of that time period. Yeah. But this you listen to it and you go, it's a hit, but at the same time, it probably wasn't at the time, but now it's sort of come back into vogue and everything. And, you know, myself and Alan have spoken about it at length of this is one of the, this is one of the best disco films, even though it's not a disco film. It's a romance, as I I said earlier. I think it would make a a weird triple bill, but kind of somehow fit uh, this Saturday Night Fever and Spike Lee's Son of Sam. I think all all, all three kind of, (laughs) Because I always look at Son of Sam being like what was happening elsewhere in New York when uh, Saturday Night Fever was happening. Because it was, uh, yeah, 1977, I think, was when that all that shit was going down. So it's kind of a, an, another side of the coin. And then you've got a couple of years earlier, <laughs> you've got Carlito's Way kind of happening again in, in, in a similar area. What's this supposed to be like? Is it Harlem, like the Barrio and stuff like that? And like. Yeah, it seems like is it, they, 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 they perfectly paint these portraits of New York in the 70s, but only one of them was made in the 70s. The other two are the 90s movies, which I think is crazy. <laughs> so let's move on to, uh, yeah, look, is, is there any uh, Hitchcock, out-and-out out Hitchcock references that either of you picked up on in this film? It's it's probably littered with it, but then everybody's been ripping off Hitchcock for decades anyway. That's the thing. You know, you you watch a film nowadays, it could be anything, and you go, well, that's a Hitchcock reference, let's be honest. So it, as much as you're you're trying to point us in the direction here, Petros, and trying to get us to say something, <laughs> the, the answer is just about every film since Hitchcock has got some sort of Hitchcock reference in it. Um, some are more obvious than others, but, you know, as we said earlier, De Palma loves Hitchcock and if he can be compared to him or even said I can better him then I think I think he's a very happy chap (laughs) Matt is there anything that you you picked up on that is overtly kind of a homage to Hitchcock in any way in this film uh I mean no I mean I I mean as, as we've said there must be specific ones in there but yeah he's been such a blanket kind of uh uh advocate of of hitchcock's style and theme and 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 feel as well that it kind of does can't help but blanket the whole kind of film but in a way that whereas maybe i think some of de palma's films gets hit with that stick a little harder this one can breathe in its own way and is very much its own thing whilst having these electric kind of set pieces that feel hitchcockian in the way it builds tension and suspense um but whilst tying into something that is, you know, explicitly like like a New York movie and a gangster movie and, and this character piece as well. Um, so I think this is, you know, this could well be an example of one that's how to do it, really, where it's like you kind of go, yeah, that does kind of feel uh, Hitchcockian. But like, 
I'm not really going to point out any any big things here. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's not like uh, Phantom of the Paradise where it's kind of got him mm. aping the shower scene from uh, Psycho or anything like that. Um, so a couple of quiz questions for you guys. How many times is the word fuck said in this film? Who wants to take a guess? Mark, do you want to go first? Uh, I would say it's less than Scarface. So I would say somewhere in the region of about 150, maybe. Okay. Matt, do you want to, do you want to take Ooh, a guess? Hi- higher maybe. or lower? I'd say higher. <laughs> maybe like a 181 or something. The correct answer, Mark was closer. It's one, 139 Ooh. in this film. And That's a lot of fucks to get. <laughs> and um, how many split diopter shots do we get in this film? Again, we'll go to you, Mark. How, how, how many do you reckon there are? <laughs> this is a trick question, surely. Uh, as, mm, oh, I don't know. I'm going to say... I'm going to say, well, maybe 50, maybe more. Let's, let's go with around 50, but I could be missing ones. I don't know. Uh, it's not. No, no, it is. It's, 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 it's single figures. Matt, do you want to? Sorry. I, I should have I should have, I should yeah, have asked Matt I, first. I, I'm going to say it's just the one. Just the one in the, in the bar scene uh, right before the knifeman gets uh, John Ortiz. When it's like close up on Pacino's face as the guy's running behind him. It's, it's blinking. You miss it almost. But other than that, I didn't quite notice any others. Well, there's a there's a there's a couple more, and some of them are just like the way in which like the 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 camera is done and the kind of staging of it. So uh, there is there's seven in total. One of them is when um, Carlito first talks to Sasso, and he's in the mirror. So obviously, like the the mm. depth of field in that, like obviously he's, he's he's much further back. There's the one you mentioned in the bar scene. There's a really subtle one as well. When Carlito and Gail are in the DA's office and they're sat on the couch and it's a split doctor and it's kind of, it's a split doctor, but it's done at a Dutch angle as well. And it's really weird because, yeah, he looked like, obviously, split doctor sometimes messes with the kind of, I don't know, like the proportions of people in, in some way. Um, there's one, oh, there's an amazing one when Steffi first talks to Carlito in the bar and he's focused on the dancer on the dance uh, floor that looks like gay yeah yeah and like yeah she's in perfect focus the dance and it's almost like you're kind of you're like him you're looking back and forth between the two of them going like what's literally be? one one eye on the other girl <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah um there's a really quick one as well which is there is a shot of the clock at grand central station i think it's just as they come down the bottom of the stairs you can see the clock and then just like everything happening behind it. And it, again, it's really fucking quick. And there is a really quick one on the train as well. When you've got the fat guy kind of standing by like the train door and Carlito's coming towards him. Mm-hmm. And then just right at the beginning in that courtroom scene as well, you have uh, Carlito and Kleinfeld in the foreground. And then you have like the prosecution. And that's, yeah, again, done like a split diopter. Uh, if they're not, I blame the Twitter account, <laughs> which uh, lists every split diopter shot in films. And yeah, they've listed seven this movie. Right. Well, yeah, Mark, you've got, you've got a head off, right? Should we, should, we, should we let you go? And then me and Matt will wrap this bad boy up? or If that's all right with you guys. Yeah, that's, of course. Before you go, though, Mark, where can people... Keep up to date with everything you're doing, and where can they buy that bloody Al Pacino book? 
Uh, so I'm on Twitter, Mark underscore Searby, my website, MarkSearby.com. You can buy Al Pacino, The Movies Behind the Man, from all good and some bad ebook retailers. There are some secondhand copies that float about on eBay as well, um, so you can buy them there. It is 664 pages of uh, Al Pacino's filmography, so it includes uh, deep dives into every single film he's made. Um, it starts with pre-production and the filming and uh, critical reviews, um, box office returns and analysis from me. And it also includes over 60 exclusive interviews, all done by myself with people who have worked with Pacino isn't. through the years. Well, thank you so much for movie Bratton and Broin with me, Mark. And, and, and yeah, thanks for coming along. Cheers, Mark. Thanks for having me on, guys. I've enjoyed it. So now it's just just me and you, Matt. We get to have the the the, the fun discussion of how this film compares to Francis mm. Ford Coppola's 1993 output. But before we do that, I want to know: Does this film contain any nepotism? Could you see any overt nepotism in this film? Were there people there mm. who shouldn't have been there? We know, I know it's a it's a big it's a big uh, big talking point at the moment. Nepotism babies. Yeah, I don't know. I think place. I think a lot of people in this are legit, and uh, I think a lot of the supporting characters are probably from you know like New York actors. I can't see them having <coughs> like well known parents. Um, I don't know John Leguizamo's background or or where Penelope Ann Miller kind of comes from, or even Pacino actually. Like if he had any uh, famous acting parents, but I think it's got a lot less. For sure, than a standard Coppola joint. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, really funny you say about John Leguizamo because it took them ages to get him in this film. Like, well, I love um, that he did uh, this and Super Mario Brothers in the same year. I mean, that's range, baby. <laughs> <laughs> the the top and the bottom of the barrel, all in one <laughs> yeah. foul swoop. Yeah, and the, and that makes it even more bizarre that, that it took loads of convincing to make him like be in this film because he was. Mm. I think he was like a really big stage actor at the time and like uh his concern were that it was a small part but I guess like everybody kind of knows like like Benny from the Bronx. Yeah, I mean hey, that? there's there's no small parts, only small actors and this is a yeah, perfect yeah, yeah. proof of that. Like he's his screen time may be low but his impact is high and uh you know he he caps off the whole thing. Yeah, so yeah fascinating i guess it's and you're right i think if you say to most movie fans i'm benny Bron- uh, benny blanco from the and stop people will say bronx like you know it's in there yeah. it's in the it's in the collective so the film that we are looking at for mm-hmm. this for this chat is uh well the closest film by release date is actually the same film that i looked at last time with mary wilde and it is count uh it is what am i talking about it is francis ford coppola's bram stoker's dracula um so which film do you think fared better at the box office oh probably dracula i think it was a big deal right the fact that it was coppola at that point and you know a big dracula story having this big kind of gothic uh lavish um I mean, was it a blockbuster? Like, I don't remember, but it feels like one that could have been marketed that way. And it feels like it's had more of a cultural impact as well, overall. Well, let's have a look at the box office for, as I said, the box office for this film was 63 million off a budget of 30 million. The budget for Dracula was 10 million more than this, so 40 Mm. million dollars. 
box office return was $215.9 million. So, out of the box office, it wiped the floor with uh, Carlitos, where you could imagine. <laughs> you, could, you could easily <laughs> say, right? Yeah. Um, My God. What a time. But in regards to one of the things I like to look at is like, in regards to kind of cultural impact, what do you think kind of has had, which film has had more of an impact on cinema as as, as a whole, would you say? Like, what would those Well, this is be? it. I'd, I'd probably say, you know, Carlito's Way, because whether people, you know, know it offhand, I think to the general moviegoer, you know, they all know Scarface. They might not know this. Um, I think whether they realize it or not, you know, so many gangster movies have kind of been inspired by this or or in some way that the feel and like i said you know the kleinfeld character being lifted wholesale for for a number of things um um and and yeah i think it's just a really really amazing sort of mid i guess you'd say mid-career pacino performance here seeing as how far he's gone on to um and one that's yeah manages to play into type and against type i think he's i think he's wonderful like i think the voiceover that we kind of touched upon as well. Like, again, that's something that has the potential to be so kind of hacky and cheesy. And I think it's just so well done, like through his delivery and kind of the, the, the things he highlights that he says in it. Um, so yeah, I'd like to say that this has the bigger cultural hit. Certainly for me, it does. Um, although I know Dracula does have a lot of big fans, but Dracula is something that, you know, is done again and again so often anyway. Um, so there's always new iterations and old iterations to pull from when there's a new vampire story, if not a Dracula one, um, being done. Whereas this feels a lot more unique. Definitely, and I, yeah, like you saying that whole like GTA aspect mm. of Carlito's mm -hmm. way, like it almost like when you get to that bit of them trying to break, like trying to do the 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 job to get the guy out of prison. That feels like a GTA mission, right? Yeah, it is. Get 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 to the speedboat, like like jump in, drive out there. You got to go to the the floating uh, pink marker, make sure your boat's there. Cue cut scene, and then like, do you know what I mean? You would imagine like I don't know. Uh, then it would be like a, a race, a race around the town to like get away to, mm -hmm. from, from from gangsters straight away. So yeah, I think. Yeah, looking at looking at now, it's the yeah Ken Rosenberg, the character from GTA Vice City, who is just wholesale Kleinfeld, and then yeah, Mike Mike uh, Mike Strutter from Paul K. Like, just look him up. It's the funniest thing ever, and it is exactly down to the color of his shirt. Yeah, I'm trying to think because I know that uh, there is a character that Danny Dyer voices that turns up in a couple of GTA games. I think he's in Vice City and San Andreas, and I'm not sure if. Ken Rosenberg might, or he might die in Vice City, if I remember rightly. He might, he might see the same as Kleinfeld in this. <laughs> but what film. if Danny Dyer is the voice of the Kleinfeld stand-in? My God! No, no, no. He's the voice of Kent Paul, who's like a. Oh yes. Do you, yeah, yeah. If you remember him, he's like this kind of mm -hmm. uh, crazy, like music promoter that you have to deal with, and normally have to go get him drugs from one place and deliver it to. <laughs> sex sex fist or something the band that he managed like <laughs> yeah um well yeah i could talk about gta all night but this isn't the gta podcast that's that's my next venture <laughs> so um i yeah well, the, the thing i want to know is how many benny blanco from the bronx out of five do you give this film Matt? 
Oh, this is the this is the full Benny. <laughs> this is the full Benny Five, baby. Yeah, it's um, it's one that I haven't rewatched in in quite some time. So I was interested to see if this was one that you know had a bit of a place in my head anyway. Because um, since I've started Letterboxd, of course, I've I've only logged stuff that I've watched since having an account. So if it's not on there, but I know I've seen it before, then it means I haven't seen it since at least 2014, and it wasn't wasn't there. It's been longer than that. And I was like, yeah, this is easily happily a straight five. It's uh, it's probably my favorite to Palmer. It's one of my favorite Pacinos. It's one of my favorite gangster films. The list goes on. It's incredible. It's. It, I think it's their best. Like, team mm-hmm. I, I, I prefer it much more. Yeah. Than Scarface. I think it's because it's a lot more soulful and like poetic and like the way. Yeah, that that voiceover, which I know David Kep had a lot of problems with trying to figure out when that voiceover is supposed to be from. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm. like what, 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 who, like. When is Carlito narrating this, or like, because, and it it, it it does at some points get a bit confusing. It's almost like him out of body watching all this stuff again at points because he kind of says, like, "Well, yeah, like I like to think it is him." You know, we see him get shot at the start. I like to think the whole film is him remembering everything while being on that gurney, and you know, yeah. and the voiceover is that is his memory from bleeding out and being because he because that's it. The voiceover has a kind of a sense of calmness to him which doesn't always come across out of the context of scenes. And, you know, some of the stuff he says is kind of things you you think about and realize about yourself after something has passed. And in this case, you know, it's pretty much his his actual life. You know, all the little little bits he has, like when he says about recognizing, trying to recognize people after you've been away for a while. He's like, everybody's got a different face. Maybe you do too. And, uh, you know, if you can't see the angles anymore, you're fucked. And it's like he's realizing... Uh, all his mistakes in life now that he's suffered the consequences and is able to kind of impart that sort of wisdom as we see over the events of the film. Yeah, it's like that moment when he's, uh, when John Ortiz's character, he sees that his dead body and he's like, you poor beautiful boy. Like, mm. do you know what I mean? It, it, it kind of comes first person like that. Like, because I was like, is, is he saying, because you, you don't see his face. It's like, is this a voiceover or is this him saying this? And it, it, yeah, it's, it's the, the voiceover because as you said, it's got this, real like calmness like the way he delivers that that closing monologue is it's just it's just great when he's like i knew at one point i was going to be like i'd be taking a visit to the mortuary everybody thought it was going to be a lot earlier than this he's like less to the mohicans <laughs> maybe not the last and it's just like it's kind of like, i don't know kind of like a a guy rambling at the bar do you know what i mean mm. it's, it's it's a fascinating way to to, to encapsulate the kind of the calmness yeah. of, of of death as well. And it's such the uh, an antithesis to the kind of, you know, the big hooah Pacino, yeah, yeah. which, uh, you know, is, you can feel under the surface, but he's reining it in here. And I think anyone who thinks of Pacino as a bit of a one-note actor, I mean, first of all, you're, in, you're insane. You know, he's clearly one of the greats. But this just shows how different he can be from the, say hello to my little friend! To to this, you know, that you know, you could think he's doing another gangster film, the same director, but you know, this is a million miles away from Tony Montana, and uh, he's 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 impeccable. Yeah, and that feels like a a a, a good place to leave this chat. Is there mm. is there any other yeah um, any other to, like yeah you you mentioned that there's the Palmer films you hadn't seen. Is it what what would be the one film that you're you're most excited to check out? Let's let's leave the conversation on that. Yeah, no, I really wanna, I really wanna see um, Dress to Kill, 
I think that's probably the biggest profile one of his I haven't seen. Like I've done, I've done Scarface, Carrie, Mission Impossible, Untouchables, Blowout, this, Phantom of the Paradise, uh, Body Double, even Sisters, actually, one of his uh, really early ones. Is it Sisters? Yeah, yeah sisters. sisters is kind of like the first of the like De Palma, De Palma films. You know, when he started yeah. being, because before that, it's kind of New York comedies with Robert De Niro. It's kind of this weird like delineation in his career. It's like three movies, they're kind of black and white, they're Robert De Niro. Then after that, it's kind of, now I'm getting a bit Hitchcockian and a bit thrillery. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So Just to Kill, I think, is up there for some real 80s femme fatale noirness uh, that isn't femme fatale 2002's femme fatale <laughs> <laughs> perfect well matt thank you so much for coming and talking some De Palma with me thank you man well there we have it guys that was fun wasn't it a massive thank you to matt and mark for joining me and as always a massive thank you to you guys the patreons because as you know already you're the real ones. You're the real ones. Uh, obviously, as I said on the last episode, um, if you enjoying this Patreon stuff, please share it on socials. Like when I put out the the link on uh, all, the, all the socials for the for the episodes and stuff like that, give them a share. Like let other people know that there's some good stuff going on behind this. Let's be honest, very small pay, pay uh, paywall that I've probably undercutted myself by putting uh and and over extending myself and being like yeah it'll be fortnightly and it'll be two pound fifty a month so <laughs> but at the same time it's still a lot of fun as for next time on movie brat bros we're keeping it in the kind of gangster vein but we're heading back to 1987 and we're actually heading back to the 1930s because I will be joined by Rich Nelson of the Do You Want Me podcast and formerly of the Betamax Video Club to discuss The Untouchables. Uh, if you've seen that film, uh, in the comments to this one, let me know what you think of that film. I really want to know. I really, yeah, I really want a bit more of like a kind of community vibe up in this house. Um, let me know as well. I'll, I'll put a post out separately just in case people don't listen to this. But you guys who are listening to this, would you like me to share the like uh, the show notes I make for well not the show notes but the kind of notes I make for all the episodes stuff like that kind of and share the um, share the Google Doc like uh, spreadsheet that shows which guests are coming up and stuff like that not just for this but on on uh, the the main channel as well yeah let let me know if you want any of that and uh, yeah just give you an extra peek behind the curtain again. A massive thank you to all you guys for for being for being supporters of this little little venture that we're doing over here. So as always, I've been Petros Patsilavus, I've been Movie Bratton, and I've been Broin, and I'll catch you next time on the Palmarama. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Copa Connections, A Droop Town Limery, Maine, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.